0: Library Discoveries is available wherever you prefer to subscribe to your podcasts. Your weekly dose of bookish goodness. Sharing our love of books and printed papers with the world. Most of the books will be quite old. Some will be rare, but others will be new. All of them will be unusual or notable in some way. It's your way to visit the library without visiting the library. We will focus mainly on Britain and England, but not completely. Each adventure starts with a library find, but ends who knows where. Join us in the library with the roaring fire and the leather chairs. Cigars optional.
1: Welcome to Library Discoveries, and this week we're looking at George Orwell. Specifically this week, we are looking at volumes 18 and 19 of The Complete Works, edited by Peter Davison, and both books have arrived here from the London Library in St. James's Square. However, as for our John le Carré special last week, I thought it was appropriate, and in fact mandatory, to look at the other books in my collection that are attributed to Orwell, or about Orwell, or collections and edited versions of his works. The reason for that is that then we don't have to have repeated episodes focusing on George Orwell, although he is very important. There are other writers around that I want to cover. So without further ado, uh, let's look at the non-books that we're looking at this week. In other words, the non-library books, starting with this uh, little pamphlet by Penguin. It's part of their selection called Great Ideas, and Orwell is number 57, or at least this Orwell is 57. It's called Books versus Cigarettes. That stood out on the shelf to me. The cover price is three shillings and sixpence, but I can tell you that the book is from 2008. So in other words, it's an old cover or it's a faux old cover with the price. The real price is UK 4.99, Canadian dollars 9.99, It's a selection of short essays and articles, and the first one is the books for cigarettes. And I really, really like the idea behind this, because what he's saying is, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, a newspaper editor, was fire-watching with some factory workers, and the factory workers said, "'You don't suppose we read that stuff, do you? "'Half the time, you're talking about books "'that cost 12 and sixpence. "'Chaps like us couldn't spend 12 and sixpence on a book.'" And that leads to an entire article which appeared in Tribune on the 8th of February, 1946. The knob of this article is that Orwell spends far more on cigarettes than books, as do all of the people who say they can't afford books. So really what it boils down to is your own prioritizations and how you view things in life. And Orwell, as a professional writer, obviously prioritises books. He buys a lot, he borrows a lot, books from libraries, second-hand books. And he still ended up spending more on cigarettes. And I think today, with tax the way it is, uh, that differential will be even higher. So any smokers that you know can definitely afford to buy books. And I think particularly paperbacks, uh, and not to say eBooks these days, are probably even less relative to cigarettes than they were when Orwell wrote that piece. Uh, That's a really nice little edition. Paperback fits in your pocket, brilliant. Next one, Penguin Modern Classics, quite an old one. Uh, it's not quite reached the stage of foxing, but I can say that all the outer edges are faded to within at least, you know, half a centimetre of the edge, if not more. This was made and printed in Great Britain by Hunt, Barnard & Co, Aylesbury. Uh, and it's a really nice animal farm. There we go. Animal farm, 15p in the UK, or translated for modern readers or the other way around, three shillings. So it was priced both in duodecimal and Metric, I don't know, what what am I talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, it was 15p when it was printed. Or 60 cents in Australia, 65 cents in Canada. What a bargain. And it's a really nice cover as well with a sort of a, who's the guy with the floppy watches and clocks? Dali, it's got a Dali type cover on it. Great, really nice. Animal Farm. Next, 1984, guess what? Penguin 20th century classics now, not modern classics. Price, £5.99. None of this duodecimal business on here. So this 1984, a really nice example. A Little bit faded around the edges, but nice big font. It's actually got an introduction by Peter Davison, a note on the text, and by Ben Pimlot as well, who writes the introduction itself. 1984, I would say needs no introduction, Every book is capable of being introduced. One of the reasons I liked 1984 as a concept is because it was the year that Apple released the Mac and therefore they used a Big Brother scenario to advertise the Apple Mac, which I thought was very clever. Of course, the year 1984 turned out to be nothing like George Orwell's prediction in many ways, but many of the things that he foresaw, such as TVs in every room, possibly two-way TVs, sounds a bit like Zoom to me, a lot of what he foresaw has eventually come to pass. And in some countries, of course, his totalitarian view is very much to the fore. So 1984 was science fiction, political fiction, just like Animal Farm was, but in a different style, a more realistic style than Animal Farm, and perhaps more terrifying as a result. A really absolute all-time classic. We now move closer towards the subject of today's podcast, although in many ways Orwell himself is the subject. We just happen to have chosen these two blue books for the purposes of having to choose a library book essentially. I have here the, the first editions, the hard covers of the selections made by Peter Davison from Orwell's Letters and the other volume from his Diaries. And this is a really nice way of studying Orwell. Once you've read the books or the books that you want to read, for which for many people stops at Animal Farm in 1984, although the others are well-recommended, the next port of call might be the diaries, actually. And in particular, I found the wartime diaries very interesting, where Orwell was, uh, yes, working on propaganda and other things for the Ministry of Information and, and wartime efforts like that. But he also was looking after chickens and growing crops at home to feed himself with and became known as, as Dig for Britain and, and lots of other things besides. And it's perhaps not a thousand miles away from where we are today in terms of thinking about uh, self-sufficiency as an island, or if not as an island, then as a village or as, a, as an individual within a village. People I know have bought chickens, for example. So Orwell did that uh, way before you guys did it. And he wrote it all up in his diary, including how many eggs were laid each day or each week by the chickens. And I found that the most memorable section. And I read this when it came out many years ago. This particular selection was published in 2010. So about 10 years ago, I first read this. And I found uh, particularly the war diaries to be quite, quite memorable. The letters themselves I don't think he was a great letter writer. A lot of the letters are business letters about articles, editors, fees for things, contractual disputes. They're pretty boring. Although for a potential, you know, somebody who wants to be a writer, they, they do provide an interesting insight into life. Even for somebody who we can now consider to be an all-time great, life was not easy or simple for Orwell in a business sense And of course the letters also, there are sad times in the letters, um, people seem to put more of their lives into letters then, whereas now they'd be in emails or hidden away in text messages and and not really visible to the biographer in a a same way, in an easy way. So the letters are either boring or they are somewhat difficult to pass in the sense that you don't know how much is for show and how much is for real. And I do believe that the diaries were personal diaries that were not intended to be consumed, shall we say. So not like a modern celebrity diary might be written with half an hour on publication. I genuinely think Orwell was one of those people, and there were many of them, who simply wrote a diary because they wanted to write a diary. Even though everything else he did was published, they seem honest. And I don't think the letters, all of them are fully honest. So that's my personal view on the letters and the diaries. If you wanted to Recommendation I would say start with the diaries, and this collection by Davison is as good a place to start as any. It's just the right level of detail for the non academic reader. And that brings us finally, I'll move closer. That brings us finally to the subject of today. And part of the reason I've delayed this is simply that this is 20 volumes and it is believed to be as close as possible to get to the complete catalogue of everything Orwell wrote, which has survived. And that's an important thing. A lot of what he wrote was stolen. He was raided when he was abroad by people we believe worked for Russia. Certainly Peter Davison believed that some of Orwell's diaries sit in Moscow in the NKVD archives, which I think is fabulously exciting when you think that the Russians were interested in Orwell to the degree that they would break into his hotel and steal papers and diaries to see what he was thinking about. That's just fabulous for me. And an absolute, you know, underlining of Orwell's stature, even during the later part of his life. So even when he was still alive, he was seen as an absolute anarchist to an extent, an agitator, definitely, a radical. And a lot of the letters and articles are somewhat radical. Perhaps why I prefer the diaries. So we get to volumes 18 and 19. These were not picked... In an arbitrary fashion. So what happened was, uh, as so often at this point in time, I am, as you many of you know, I'm reading the Clive James memoirs, all five volumes. And I'm about halfway through, but he talks about Orwell and he talks about Orwell's journalism in particular. And he says, you know, some of this stuff during the war and towards the end of the war, Orwell was writing a lot of journalism and a lot of it is still great. You know, even now today, 70 years later, it's great. So I picked these two, 18 and 19. This covers the years 1946, where it, the title is Smothered Under Journalism. Not Orwell's title, but, you know, indication. And then uh, the, the last sort of two full years of Orwell's life, 47 and 48, it is what I think. So more of his deep personal beliefs in journalistic form and they are every bit as good as Clive James said and I'm going to be reading from one of the articles about how to make a cup of tea at the end of this episode but the reason I've hesitated and done this towards the end is that these books are too new to have the character the real character of the library they do smell well but they were published in 98 and it has all of the usual London Library stuff, the stamp, the blind stamp, the pencil. It has what you would expect. It has the L. It has the number 2338 stamped there. They are the original bindings, which is great. And there's a ribbon to help you keep your page and everything. But since August 98, this one here, volume 18, has been borrowed 21 times and I'm the 21st. So. They are very scholarly, academic, and the other book's about the same number of boroughs as well, scholarly, academic pieces. They're very heavy, they're full of notes, and they're really exciting for proper Orwell fanatics. You know, I could imagine myself in a bigger library, bigger house than this, with a full shelf of these, all 20 volumes. The first nine volumes are the books. I think I said the novels in an earlier piece but they're not all fiction. The first nine volumes are the book length works and the other 11 volumes are the letters, diaries, journals and journalism in chronological order which can make difficult reading. By which I mean tedious reading. So if you are a generalist who liked the novels but just want a little bit more detail then go for the diaries or a life in letters. They are really well selected, nicely bound, not too heavy, not too detailed. But if you are an absolute completist and a massive Orwell fan, then probably my somewhat idiosyncratic assessment of his works has offended you in some way, for which I apologize. But second of all, you're gonna want the full 20. I mean, looking on a shelf, this would take up a full shelf A good two feet of shelf without any question. Each volume is about £30 if you can find them all. And they are fabulous. I have found on Amazon a massive cache in a single volume as a Kindle book of all of the non-fiction for £30. So in other words, you can buy all 11 books, the non-fiction, for the price of one hardback on your Kindle which weighs nothing. So word to the wise, if you want to read everything, but you have a small budget, get the Kindle version. It's fabulous and absolutely has every single page. It's thousands of pages. So that's Library Discoveries for this week. I just need to hand over to Paul to read out uh, a large selection of the article about tea. Over to you, Paul. This one's called A Nice Cup of Tea and it appeared as the Saturday essay in the Evening Standard on the 12th of January, 1946. If you look up tea in the first cookery book that comes to hand, you will probably find that it is unmentioned or at most you will find a few lines of sketchy instructions which give no ruling on several of the most important points. This is curious not only because tea is one of the mainstays of civilization in this country, as well as in era, Australia, and New Zealand, but because the best manner of making it is the subject of violent disputes. When I look through my own recipe for the perfect cup of tea, I find no fewer than 11 outstanding points. On perhaps two of them, there would be pretty general agreement, but at least four others are acutely controversial. Here are my own 11 rules, every one of which I regard as golden. First of all, one should use Indian or Ceylonese tea. China tea has virtues which are not to be despised nowadays. It is economical, and one can drink it without milk, but there is not much stimulation in it. One does not feel wiser, braver, or more optimistic after drinking it. Anyone who uses that comforting phrase, a nice cup of tea, invariably means Indian tea. Secondly, tea should be made in small quantities, that is, in a teapot. Tea out of an urn is always tasteless, while army tea, made in a cauldron, tastes of grease and whitewash. The teapot should be made of china or earthenware. Silver or ware pots produce inferior tea, and enamel pots are worse. Though, curiously enough, a pewter teapot, a rarity nowadays, is not so bad. Thirdly, the pot should be warmed beforehand. This is better done by placing it on the hob rather than by the usual method, of swilling it out with hot water. Fourthly, the tea should be strong. For a pot holding a quart, if you are going to fill it nearly to the brim, six heaped teaspoons should be about right. In a time of rationing, this is not an ideal that can be realized on every day of the week, but I maintain that one strong cup of tea is better than 20 weak ones. All true tea lovers not only like their tea strong, but like it a little stronger with each year that passes a fact which is recognised in the extra tea ration issue to old age pensioners. And Orwell goes on in this vein uh, for a Couple of pages. So fifthly, the tea should be put straight into the pot. Sixthly, one takes the teapot to the kettle and not the other way around to make sure it's literally boiling as you pour. Seventhly, you should stir it or give it a shake, letting it settle. Eighthly, one should drink out of a mug style cylindrical cup, not a shallow one. Uh, Ninthly, you should pour off the cream from the milk so it's not really uh, creamy and, and sickly. Tenth, pour the tea into the cup first so that you can use the milk to regulate the strength, which is obviously, or something I agree with and, and no sane person would ever ever dream of putting milk in before tea and then the last item number 11 is no sugar uh, and there we go on it's fabulous stuff and it shows the humor of the guy and it shows that even his you know throwaway weekly pieces and occasional pieces were of the finest quality really nice piece from george Orwell
0: In 1996, a TWA plane exploded into the sea after taking off from JFK. For years, some people thought it had been shot down by an American missile. What if they were right? My husband, Mike Gillum, is a tin kicker, someone who investigates plane crashes. He's from Manchester, England, but works in Washington, D.C. for the NTSB, what appears to be an appalling accident, a plane crash in the Potomac, quickly becomes an international scandal. Mike risks his life trying to find out what happened in the skies over Washington that day. Kicking Tin by Paul Charles is available from all the best bookshops and online outlets in paperback and ebook.